Good evening, everybody. I've got that it's just a little bit before seven, and I wanted to do a little of um, a little housework here first before um, we we get started in all all of this. There's still a couple of people coming in. I hope you signed in with Robin. Um, if you haven't, please run over there. She's going to wait a few more minutes and sign anybody else who needs to be signed in. It's just a way for me to keep track of who's here and how many and all, all that sort of thing. Um, Christy's also here tonight uh, re representing our, our adult education uh, folks and book sales and such. And so let me, let me get a, a couple of plugs in uh, for her and for what she's doing. First, if you do not have a Bible or you've lost your Bible or you can't find your Bible or you don't have a Wi-Fi connection and you'd like, you'd like a, a, what this basically is, is an iPad with a battery that never runs out, okay? Um, if you'd like a Bible, we have some free Bibles. Anyone who'd like a Bible, I think we've given away a few tonight. I don't want anybody who uh, wants a Bible to walk out without a Bible. So if you, uh, if you want one, uh, they'll be over there at the table where Christy is and would love for you to, to take one of those. Um, I can't give this away, but this is, our, this is basically our text that we're using this. this um, see, hey, Stuart, there's a little bit of a humming ring or something. Not, not sure what we can do about that. I'll try to talk louder. Hey, that's better already. Um, this is the commentary by Stanley Hauerwas. How many of you bought this so far? Have some of you already bought it? Some of you did. Good. Um, I'm, I'm going to be relying on him pretty heavily tonight. But what will really help you is if you read this along the way with me. I've read through it a couple, three times. I'm just uh, nerdy enough to do that. Um, he's a great scholar. Uh, he's, a, he's a fine writer, too. Sometimes those two things don't come together necessarily. Um, and he also doesn't get into the technical detail of the text. I've got another commentary up here by uh, Tom Long. Gets a little bit more into the, into the technical stuff. I read a commentary today, a brand new one that I just got. It uh, cost me $75. It's about that thick. Read about 100 pages this morning on Matthew, and um, you don't want to buy that one, trust me. Uh, uh, but it's really good. If you're, if you're me, it's really fun. But what, what Hauerwas does is... Um, he writes it in almost a, a typological way. Do you know that word? Um, he sees things through the lens of what is this saying to me and how do I live now? He, um, you'll see a quote a little bit later tonight about his idea is that Matthew wrote his gospel for Christians who want to know how to be a disciple of Christ. That that's really his idea. It's kind of like this is your guideline, uh, not Hauerwas, but the gospel of Matthew is your guideline on how to be a disciple couple more things about him. If you find yourself being irritated by an opinion he has, welcome to the club. Um, he irritates liberals. He irritates conservatives. He really ticks off fundamentalists. He picks on just about everybody. Not necessarily directly in here, but, there, but there'll be some things, especially if you're familiar with the uh, with some of the issues and the topics that are at work um, in Matthew's gospel. You'll go, wait a second, that's not what most folks who think like me uh, uh, think. That's not, that's, that's on the other side of the fence. Um, that, that's a, that's a sign to me that he's a really, he really is a, an outstanding scholar. Julie and I heard him present at the University of San Francisco, uh, about 25 years ago. Um, USF is a Roman Catholic school, fine school academically, uh, very high. You'd, you'd think of it as Notre Dame in, in many ways. Um, by the end of the night, he had just all kinds of people stirred up. And he's, he's, for example, uh, he would, I'll, I don't know that he'd use these words, but he's kind of a, a pro-life person. That means he's anti-abortion and anti-death penalty. Both. Um, very strongly on, on, on those two things. Now, again, you may not agree with that, but it's, it's fascinating to read his stuff and kind of see how he comes to some of these conclusions. And, and I, I think it's just one of the best commentaries out there that's also well-written. Well um, we have a few of these left. The Bible I'll be referencing tonight, in fact, the outline that you received, I hope you got an outline as you came in. Those should have been at the door too. Um, the outline on Matthew's Gospel comes straight out of the New Interpreter's Bible. It should be a footnote on your outline for what we're going to follow this uh, during this six weeks. This is the best, in my opinion, um, and I'm right. This is the best uh, new uh, study Bible available. It's, it's very academic. It's the, the notes are the finest scholars in, in, the, in the country. Some of, some of them are from the outside of the United States. It is just a, a beautiful volume. Now, um, I have one of, the, one of the few leather ones that they, that they sold. And the reason I like leather is because you can hold it and it looks like you've been really reading your Bible a lot. So that's, that's why, one of the reasons I like that. Um, but honestly, the, the notes in here, uh, the excursus and the little articles on the side, um, the introductory comments, really outstanding. Um, Christy, how much are these? these are, what did you say? 
30, these are $33. That's a steal, trust me. So if, you'd want it, if you want to use the same Bible I'm using, um, pick up one of those from uh, Christy later on, uh, either tonight, right now, or um, ne- next week. I think that's all the stuff. Oh, one, one more thing. I found, um, I was getting ready for tonight and found my outline in my folder from last, last year. If any of you would like the outline that we used last year in my senior minister Bible study, uh, especially if you weren't there, let me know. It'll be kind of a fun thing for you to read through these. This was, I went through the entire Bible in six, six weeks. And those of you who were there last time, remember, it's like, all right, Genesis 1. Here's what happened, Genesis 1. Now Genesis 2. We went really fast. Oh, Michael still has his. That's, you got an A. Even though you're in the second row, that gives you an A for the night. So I'm going to leave that over at the table with Robin with a, pen, a pencil. And if you want one, just write your name on there and, and I'll make sure that you, you get one of those. Um, uh, in fact, I'll go do that right now. Robin, can I hand this to you? To her, thank you. All right, I'm, I'm going to try to uh, uh, be done at 8 o'clock. I don't like to go long, especially when we say we're going to do something from 7 to 8 o'clock. So uh, let's, let's get right into it. Um, uh, one of the things uh, on the outline, you see we're, gonna, we're actually going to get into the first four chapters tonight of, of the Gospel of, of Matthew. It'll be helpful to you, and of course you didn't know this till now, It'll be helpful to you before you come to class next, next week if you can do the readings that are assigned for that day. Um, I'm not going to go verse by verse. There's too much to cover in an hour. We could spend, the, honestly, we could spend three hours on the genealogy of Jesus and not even get all the way through it if we stopped on every single character ma- mentioned in there. By the way, many of the characters mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in Genesis 1, uh, we would have to go, huh? No one knows who that is or what, what they're about. Um, but it's fascinating stuff there. I'll get into that a little bit. But if you do the reading, if you've got a general idea of what's happening in the story, that'll help to enhance uh, our time together in, in, in this study. All right, Stuart, let's go to with the first slide up there, which should be a map of Israel. Um, I, I know the picture's bad. Um, are you aware that we're building a new sanctuary? Um, and it's going to have unbelievably high-resolution screens, and you can really, you'll be able to see stuff from the back. You'll see the pimples on my face on Sunday mornings. Um, but just, just uh, can you see about three-quarters of the way up in the middle, the little blue area there, that's the Sea of Galilee. Can you see where that is? Just kind of nod your head so I know you're with me, all right? A, a lot of what uh, happens early in Jesus' ministry happens around the Sea of Galilee, okay? He's born in Bethlehem, of course, as you know. So you see where the Dead Sea is down towards the bottom? Go due west of there uh, about a... Uh, well, on that screen, about a foot or so. That's more or less where, where Bethlehem is. Of course, that's where he's born. Go on down south over into Egypt. That's where he escapes um, from, the, uh, from Herod's killers uh, right, at, right when he's probably around two years old or so. And then, of course, comes back up and goes all the way back up to Nazareth and then down to, to um, uh, back then into Jerusalem. Eventually, when we get to the end of Matthew's gospel. Um, if you've got a good study Bible, you're going to have some maps in the back. Get familiar with the geography of Palestine, of, of Israel, especially in the time of Christ, um, so that you can kind of know when I'm talking about Nazareth or Bethlehem or Jerusalem or Bethany or Jericho. If you don't know that off the top of your head, I mean, one of the tests we had to uh, take in seminary was a map of, of first ancient uh, Israel and then Israel during the time of King David and then, then during the time of Jesus and name all the towns and all, all that stuff, which just kind of makes sense. You should know that if you're going to be a a theologian of any, of any kind. I don't expect you to have that in your head, um, but the more familiar you are with that sort of thing, the more it's going to help you in terms of understanding uh, how, how this all works. Uh, um, um, uh, a couple, couple more things. Uh, geography really does matter because like, like when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to talk a little bit about what that geography is like. That's next week. Um, when we're talking about Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River, I'm going to talk about a little bit tonight about what that means, what's, what the symbolism is there uh, for the earliest Christians in addition to, to Jews. When we're talking about going up to Jerusalem, what does that mean? Anybody know? Going up to Jerusalem. We're not going north. We're literally going up. It's up high. When, you come, when you're down in Jericho, Jericho, I think is below sea level or close to it. Um, it's near the, it's near the uh, northern end of, of the Dead Sea there. Uh, and you you're truly are way, way, way down. And when you go up into the hills and the, and the uh, uh, 
the, essentially the mountains, you go up about four or 5,000 feet before you then get up and crest it and then come down just a little bit into Jerusalem. So when you read in the Psalms, I was, I was pleased when we, when we said together, let us go up to Jerusalem. They literally are going up from almost anywhere in Israel. You're going up to Jerusalem, whether you're coming from the north or the south, east or the, east or the west. So that's a, that's a little bit on, on getting a map and, and, and geography. All right, go to slide number two, um, if you would, <clears throat> Stuart. This is, a, this is a quote from uh, Mr. Mr. Hauerwas. I believe Matthew wrote to make us disciples of Christ. I've tried to show the quote how of that project and how I have written. That is by retelling the story Matthew tells. Uh, just a little bit about the story that Matthew tells. So I said that earlier. That's not, that's not original to me. That's, that's uh, Dr. Hauerwas who's like really smart. Um, uh, a brilliant teacher as I've said. A couple things about Matthew that, that you need to know. He incorporates almost word for word, about 90% of the gospel of Mark. Luke incorporates about 60% or so of the, of the gospel of, of Mark in his, go, in his gospel. Um, I'm getting ready to sneeze here, so let me see if I can hold that off. <clears throat> um, now, we, we hear that, and if you turn in a term paper, uh, and, and, and where's Terry? Terry copied 90% of Barb's paper, um, you know, and Barb's paper had already been in for a week, and then Terry's paper gets turned in. The professor's going to go, uh, you cheated, you, te- you, you copied off of Barb, clearly. Um, or somebody copied off of somebody there. In antiquity, that was, that was actually considered um, a compliment to the writer, that you would use their material. And in fact, Mark was probably so well known that when they read Matthew's gospel, uh, they said, oh, well, he's clearly using Mark, but he's given his own spin. He adds, he expands the story. In seminary, we talked about the kerygma. The kerygma was sort of the central teachings of the church. And, and they, there was a phrase back then that the kerygma also always expands. Well, that's essentially what that means more and more and more. Um, it's like a preacher story. Uh, we, we had a snake in our cabin in the Glen a couple of Sundays ago when uh, Julie and I were there for family camp. Somebody asked me the other day, you had a snake? How big was it? I said, approximately 19 feet. Um, <laughs> It was a boa constrictor slash anaconda combo with, uh, with the rattlesnake rattle. It was really terrible. Um, so so you know, the story kind of grows. And I'm not saying that Matthew necessarily is being exaggerating like I am, but he expands on the story and gives us additional details, ideas, thoughts, and, and other things that he includes in his overall story. Um, and so you're kind of getting his, his spin a little bit on how he understands the story of Jesus. A couple of things about Matthew. Um, we don't know the actual name of the author. The commentary I'm reading today, uh, 100 pages in, he was really trying hard to convince his readers um, that it is Matthew who is the disciple named in Jesus' list. I don't think so. I don't think it's, I don't think it's the same one. Um, most scholars agree, agree with me, or I agree with most scholars is what, what I should say about that. We don't really know, but we know a lot about him. He's clearly versed in Hebrew. He writes very well in Greek. Uh, he's most likely writing to a group of Jewish folks who have converted to Christianity or have at minimum decided they want to follow the teachings of Jesus. It depends on when his gospel was written as to whether or not they're following the teachings of Jesus or that they're full-on Christians. Do you, do you understand the difference between that? Um, the church in, in um, 50 AD was not the same as the church in 100 AD. It really evolved in a, in a new way. Early, earliest followers of Jesus may not have even thought of themselves as not being Jewish. Um, that's a whole other conversation. But that's who he's writing to. It's most likely an audience of, Jew, of Jews who've now become followers of Jesus, and he's trying to help them. A couple things to note about that. If he's versed in Hebrew, and he's versed, and he can write in Greek beautifully, what does that tell you? He's a scholar. He's dang smart. How many, what was the, what was the um, percentage of people who could read and write in, in, in antiquity 2,000 years ago? Probably less than 10%, maybe closer to five. Um, so he's, he's really in the 10%. He's really in that 5% of, of folks who are extremely smart um, and extreme, extremely talented. Um, uh, you'll notice in the, in the outline, one last thing, and then we'll get into the, the text. You'll notice in the outline that we've got a whole week to talk about the resurrection. It's, it's my contention, and I'm not going to get into this tonight too much, but it's my contention, without the resurrection, there's no reason for the other 27 chapters. As brilliant as Jesus' teaching is, as marvelous as his life is, 
it really kind of culminates in the story of the resurrection and how the disciples experienced Jesus. We'll talk a little bit about, about that, what that, what my understanding of is that. Um, let me be really clear. If you disagree with my understanding of the resurrection in five weeks, that's okay. We're not going to kick you out of the church. You're not, you know, there's, there's all kinds of people who have a variety of views. Um, but I'm going to give you kind of my spin and my understanding and my take. And I really think that the way, especially Matthew tells his story, it's vitally, vitally important that we um, have a clear understanding of, of what he's getting at there. All right, let's go to the next uh, screen. <clears throat> Uh, Jesus, this is from Howard Ross again, Jesus, the Son of God, is what Matthew is all about. That means the subject of Matthew's gospel is inexhaustible and therefore defies any attempt to make the story that Matthew tells conform to an overarching theme. That's a scholar's long way of saying, there ain't no way I could figure out what theme to assign to this, to this text. Um, I, I've done a little bit of that tonight by assigning this outline that you have that comes out of the New Interpreter Study Bible. By doing that, I'm giving you a little bit of a taste of what one scholar or group of scholars has tried to do. But essentially what Howard Ross is saying is, we, we have this much story, and it's really this big. And the Gospel of John, for example, says, I've written these things down for you, but the whole world cannot contain all the books that could be written about Jesus and his ministry. That's essentially what Harawas is saying. <clears throat> okay, um, slide four. Before we get into the text, Herod does not hesitate to murder in, or, in order to secure his power. So Matthew's gospel is about the politics of Jesus, hang on to that phrase, which entails an alternative to the power politics of the world. The politics of Jesus, moreover, entails not only the politics in the gospel, but also the politics of reading gospel. What does that mean? What he wants us to see is that if we take this seriously, it affects the politics of the world. Now, you're not gonna get to the end of the gospel of Matthew and say, I know who to vote for now in November. Isn't this nice? You might have an idea. It might shape some of your thinking. It might steer you in one way or away from another, perhaps. But on the broader context, whenever you hear somebody say the phrase, I don't think politics and church should mix, I think they're oftentimes getting confused a little bit about something that we practice in the United States of America, which is the separation of church and state which I fully support and I think is beautiful. If I'm a follower of Jesus, though, and let me be clear about this, my primary allegiance is to Jesus. I'm an American. I'm proud to be an American. In my sermon on Sunday, I talked about putting a flag on my, on my garage door on 9-11. Uh, I've supported people who've served in the military. I, I'm 100% there. But my primary allegiance is always to, United, to, <laughs> to Jesus first. There was an interview with Jimmy Carter when he was running for president in 1976. Did you remember, did you ever see this? He had just come out of church at the Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia. He's surrounded by his entourage and all the folks, you know, and he's clearly a candidate for the president. And I think it's down between him and Reagan at this point. And he comes out and somebody sticks a microphone in his face and says, uh, uh, Governor Carter, Governor Carter, are you going to follow the Ten Commandments and Jesus' teaching or are you going to follow the Constitution? And Carter started to say, you know, as a Christian person, I feel it's important that the teachings of Jesus, and he just gets whisked away. I mean, his handlers, who, you know, whatever those people are, they just whisk him away. Because you, can you see the headline the next day? Carter refuses to follow Constitution. And, and in some ways, maybe he even did. Maybe that had a strong effect on the way he led the country, and that might have been why he had some of the political issues that he did. I, I like the fact, though, that for us as followers of Jesus, at least for me, we take this stuff so seriously that it affects and colors everything we do. And that's essentially what Harawas is getting at here. If we're going to dive into this and take it seriously, it's, it's really going to affect our understanding. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, Jesus says, do you remember some of the things Jesus says? Some famous ones. Any quotes? Any famous quotes from the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the peacemakers. Is there a political implication in that? Darn tootin' it is. Yeah, that's a theological phrase. <clears throat> what about uh, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn your other cheek? Does that have political implications? Uh, it would be nice if our politicians practiced that just in their verbal conversations. <laughs> yeah, the, the stuff is absolutely full. I, I was teaching a young adult Bible study about three years ago. Church in Kansas City, we advertised to all the young adult men. Any, any young adult men who want to gather with Glenn on a Wednesday afternoon at 5.30, before you get home for dinner, we'll be done at 6.30, come sit around the table and we'll study. I had a dozen guys show up every, Sunday, every Wednesday 
we did the Gospel of Matthew. We got to the Sermon on the Mount. This one kid, his name is Matt Mater. He's a, 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 a US, United States prosecuting attorney. Brilliant guy. He's going to be a very famous, uh, he might be a judge someday. He's so brilliant. He's reading through the text. He's a brand new person of faith. Never really went to church. He's reading through it. and he go, he, We're reading through the Sermon on the Mount. He stops and he goes, does our church know about this? <laughs> I just love the absolute uh, sort of naivete there in that. And yet sort of also the excitement of a discovering this is a pretty radical word. And it really is. We'll get into that um, next week. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. All right. Uh, let's get into the text. If you got your Bible, turn it to uh, Matthew chapter 1. And if we got a blank slide next, yeah, just leave it blank. Thank you, Stuart. You read my brain. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you. No, no, as, as I think it's Hauerwas, maybe it's, maybe it's Thomas Long, one of the commentators that, that I, I'm using for tonight specifically says, no right-minded novelist would start a novel this way with a list of all these people that no one's ever heard of. But it's fascinating if you know just a little bit of Bible stuff. There's Tamar, for example, who was raped, who finally forced her father-in-law to admit the truth of what happened to her. They were going to try to shun her, cover her up, give her a, what's it called, an NDA, you know, a non-disclosure agreement or whatever, and shove her on out to the desert. She's named, she's a victimized woman named in Jesus' um, genealogy. Skip on down to verse 5. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who was Rahab? Anybody know? She was a harlot. When I was a little kid, I just thought that was like a Palestinian, you know, or, or a, a, an Egyptian. She was from uh, Harlotsville. <laughs> what is she? She's a prostitute. She had a house of prostitution built into the wall of Jericho. And when the spies were sent in to uh, check out Jericho, where's the first place they went? To the house of prostitution. You know, I, I said this once in a Bible study 25 years ago, and, and this sweet woman sitting on the front row right here, and she's just going, Glenn, that can't be true, that can't be true, that can't be true. Well, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And if, you, if you're a soldier and you've been wandering in the desert for a few years, we're, we're, you know, that's, it's... It, I say that in a couple of ways. One, to show how real the Bible is. Also to show she's in the genealogy of Jesus. I'll, I'll say a little bit more about all that in a minute. Um, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, a foreigner. She was outside of Israel. She, so was Rahab, by the way. Rahab and, and Ruth would have had different gods, plural, different religion totally from the religion of, of, of Israel. And yet here they are in Jesus' genealogy. And then we get, uh, go on down to verse uh, 6b. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. What was her name? Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba is the victim of David's power, essentially raped also. If, if the king says to a woman, come to my house and sleep with me, you have no choice. You might die otherwise because the king could kill you. And you remember she gets pregnant, they lose the child, her husband's killed eventually on battle after being sent to the front lines by, by David, the whole story. There she is in the genealogy of Jesus. And then you skip to the end. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Now here's, here's the first thing I want you to see as we're reading this together. Here are five women named among all these men. All of them in one way have some kind of a unique story and yet in some mystical way, their lives were transformed. Tamar, a victim. Rahab, if you're, if you're a prostitute in antiquity, it's probably because her husband's dead. It's probably because she has no other living relatives. And if you're a woman in antiquity and you don't have a husband and you have no living relatives, your options are slavery or prostitution or death. That's most likely what's going on there. Yet she is, she is the one who harbors these, slave, these spies from, from uh, um, uh, Israel uh, out on the other side of the Jordan River. She's the one who helps them get safe. So she's blessed by God. She's, she's part of this genealogy. Ruth, who's outside of Israel, she falls in love with, with, with Boaz. They produce children, Obed, who produces King David. And then Mary, 
and well then uh, um, uh, Bathsheba, same way. She gives birth to Solomon, who is famous in, in Israel's history. And then Mary comes, a little no one from nowhere. She has no family that's famous. She has no line that she can touch in, and yet somehow she is brought in in this miraculous way. I'm not talking about the virgin birth yet. She's brought in this miraculous way to be a part of this genealogy. So so just look right here in this opening text of Matthew. Matthew's making a point. Don't don't ever think that a preacher is just filling filling space. There's usually a point with everything we say. Not everything, because there's some dumb things I've said. I want to forget those. But most everything, especially when it's written like this, he really wants to catch our attention. He really wants us to understand Oh, and, and not, not only that, there's some real scoundrels in this list. Ahaz. Do you know the story of Ahaz? Ahaz is the guy who sold out to every foreign religion he possibly could. He wanted to bring in every god, including Yahweh and all the other gods. And in part of the um, practice in, in Ahaz's day, uh, and especially in the countries around Israel, uh, around, around on that map of Israel, <clears throat> uh, all these different, different religions were practiced. Most of them, many of them, were fertility cults. Do you know about fertility cults? The fertility cult was if, if, you, if you worship the right way and you worship well enough, then the gods will bless you with rain or, you know, fertile soil, etc., and you'll have strong crops. How do they practice this religion? Do you know what one of the practices was? Anybody know? This is a religion invented by men. You'll see why. They had sacred prostitutes. Sacred prostitutes who were priestesses who you would go and, you know, pay a certain amount to the, to the priest sleep with the prostitute, and, and if everything goes well, then God will bless you uh, with fertile crops. Um, clearly, again, a religion designed by men. Um, Ahaz brings all that stuff into Israel, and the people are horrified by it because it is so antithetical to their basic ethic and how they practice their religion, how they practice their faith and their life. I could go through half a dozen other folks and, and make this point. So here's what I want you to see then. I think we're at the next slide. <clears throat> Jesus did not belong to the nice, clean world of middle-class respectability, but rather he belonged to a family of murderers. It should be cheats, cowards, adulterers, and liars. He belonged to us. You hear what he's saying? And came to help us. No wonder he came to a bad end. That's referencing the, the crucifixion and gave us some hope. Do you see what Mr. McCabe is saying? This, this very first chapter is a way of saying to Matthew's congregation, to us. Don't do this, but just think about it. The worst thing you've ever done is probably on that list. The, the, the stuff that you and I are embarrassed about in our darkest thoughts, you know, that person that you're still angry at from 1986, and the way he treated you and you would love to, and if he walked in right now, what would you do? There's a brilliant piece in the New York Times this morning written by a veteran of the Iraq War, a man who who signed up on 9-11 because his brother was killed in the Twin Towers. And he signed up and and, and went to war and fought for us. It's brilliant what he writes, the psychological brilliance of how he's carried this anger against this one person throughout his entire life and how it has colored him and harmed him and hurt him. Um, um, you know, we got that stuff. The idea that Matthew's setting up for us here is that Jesus came to us to live among us and to help people like us. And they're, they're, named, they're named right, right there. All right. Let's go on to um, chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. And that's a hilarious line because he doesn't say anything about the birth. We don't know how, we don't, you know, like in Luke's gospel, we know he was laid in a manger and, you know, shepherds and all that stuff came. Matthew's gospel, we have none of that. By the way, I wanted to make this clear too. Every year at Christmas, we conflate. That is, we we merge the two stories. Do Do you know this? From Matthew and Luke. If you take them separately and you list out what happens in each one, you'll see that both Matthew and Luke are making radically different points. They have completely different sermons about the birth of Jesus. We put them together and we have this sweet little story and we put kids in bathrobes and all that's fun. I like doing it. I, I do it my, we've got a, a, a manger scene, a crash set that goes on our coffee table and we've conflated the stories into, into all that too. But that's, 
it's, it's fascinating when you just pay attention to Matthew's version or to um, uh, Luke's version. You'll get a totally different understanding of, of what their point was about, about the birth story. Uh, when his mother Mary had been engaged uh, to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. Anybody know what that's in reference to? Book of Deuteronomy. Go ahead. Yes, it's, that's the old way of saying it, but divorce, dismiss, send away, kick out, throw out, all those would, would kind of work. Um, in Deuteronomy, if your if uh, fiancé had sex with somebody else that wasn't you, you could simply write her a note and send her away. In fact, in Deuteronomy 22, I think it is, it says that if your fiancé has sex with another man, both of them can be killed. Note, notice what happens here. Joseph, Joseph says, I'm just going to send her away quietly. He's not going to adhere to the letter of the law. But remember what I said about Rahab? What's going to happen to Mary if he cuts her loose? And everyone knows this baby isn't Joseph's and she must have been doing something wrong and what's going on here and what's that possibly about? Uh, even though this is kinder than death, it's not that much more so because their options again are slavery, prostitution, or basically starving to death, dying. <clears throat> but, verse 20, just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, etc. Et, et I, I love, again, I, 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 I love this, this text and the, and the points that it's, it's making. Joseph through the dream, is reinterpreting the Bible. Have you seen that bumper sticker, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it? Um, it's absolute nonsense, and you can quote me. It, it makes no sense because Jesus reinterprets the Bible all the time. Here's Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 reinterpreting the Bible, reinterpreting what was taught in Deuteronomy. There's nothing in there that says, go ahead and take your wife just in case she's been conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is a whole new thing. And also work here too is the dream. Can you think of another dreamer in the, in the book of Genesis or uh, from um, a Broadway play? <clears throat> Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Yeah, the story of Joseph. Joseph is this dreamer. Here's another Joseph in Jesus' time who is this dreamer, and it's the dream helps him see a new way, a new way of grace and forgiveness and hope and welcome and openness and oh, oh so much more. Um, the best commentary on the Bible is always the Bible. That doesn't mean it's contradictory necessarily, although there are some of those. There are some serious contradictions. But oftentimes, you, Jesus will say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. That's a reinterpretation. And people kind of go, well, it's Jesus. He can do what he wants. I don't care who it is. It's a reinterpretation. And we do the same thing even, even today um, to our friends in churches who say that women aren't allowed to um, be uh, pastors in congregations because there's no women disciples and all the other arguments that they make. I, I always ask, um, do the women who attend your church cover their heads? Well, no, no, that's cultural. Oh, now that, but you're changing the Bible. Well, what about, what about the part where it says that women shouldn't cut their hair short because only the prostitutes cut their hair short? And I'm checking out the women with short hair. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Everybody, what, what did you just say, Glenn? Never mind. Uh, strike that from the record, Stuart. Uh, you know, so, it, and, and of course, well, that's cultural. Well, uh, if you start reading through the text, you begin to see some actual, actually some signs, like Matthew chapter 1, where five women are named, where in antiquity you never would have named these women in a genealogy. There's a sign right there in the very first few verses that this is a new way of seeing the world and understanding the world. The best commentary in the Bible is, is always the Bible. Now, there's a note in there about the virgin birth, and I don't want to get sidetracked by that because I don't, I don't have but 27 minutes left, and it's a lot to talk about. It might be a reference to Isaiah 7-4 where it says, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Um, there's a lot, there's a ton of theological commentary about the Hebrew word for virgin. Is it really virgin or is it young girl? I would argue that it says young girl. It's a long, boring argument. I don't want to get into it with you. If you want to read some of my commentaries on Isaiah, you can read those. There's some good stuff online. You can, you can find all of that. Essentially, what I think Matthew is doing with this story is he's letting us again see the graciousness of God. 
that, that this child was brought into the world, not, not, not uh, as some might say, you know, the lack of the sexual act therefore makes it more pure. That's nonsense in my opinion too. But the graciousness of this little girl, this nobody from nowhere, she's going to be the one who brings, who brings this child. She's the one. No one would expect this. Now, a couple little side things too about this. It wasn't unusual in Matthew's day for kings to be supposedly born by a virgin. Julius Caesar had inscriptions all over. He was born of a virgin, you know, it didn't happen, it just was totally immaculate, et cetera, et cetera. There's all those kinds, that's not the exact inscription, but you get, get, the, get the idea. So that wasn't kind of an, a, a, a strange thing. Also notice that he's going to be called king and that he's going to establish his kingdom. We'll run into that phrase in, in a little bit. But his kingdom is upside down. The kingdoms of Jesus' day were built on military might and power. And if you got the might and you got the power, you're in charge, period. This kingdom flips that up, or up upside down. It's not about who's got all the power, all the chariots, all the weapons, all the nuclear arms, all the tanks, all the M16s. It's none of that. The kingdom of God is based on the love and grace that God expects us to share, share with each other. I think that's really what's going on more than anything else in this story of, of, the, vir, of the virgin birth. All right, we're kind of rolling along. Let's keep going. Let's get it to uh, Matthew chapter 2. Visit of the wise men. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who's been born, here's that phrase, king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. A couple things to note. These are not kings. Uh, you know, we, I know we know the song, we three kings of Orient are. And I, our, my church in Kansas City used to do a big, huge pageant every year. It, it kind of faded away after a while, but it's a huge, giant pageant. And the culmination of the pageant was the three kings coming down the center aisle. And they're the three best tenor voices in the choir. And, you know, so like Damian Jones and two others, I can't think of the right ones. Arthur Marks, who sang Sunday at the 10 o'clock service. You know, these three beautiful tenors come in and they sing uh, different verses from that, that old, old familiar uh, Christmas carol and this bright... Uh, star is projected up onto the front area of the chancel and the whole congregation, the whole sanctuary goes dark and, you know, it's kind of a ooh moment, which is really nice, except it probably is not true. Um, they, they, were, they were called magi, which is sort of short uh, in Latin for mag, magus or magus, uh, which is the word related to the word magic for us. They might have been some kind of astrologers. They might have been practitioners who would come in and make predictions to kings. They would look for signs in the sky, for example, and say, ooh, we've seen this happening. These stars are moving away. We've never seen them line up before. Therefore, this must be happening. It's a good sign or it's a bad omen. They were, they were those, sorts of, those sorts of people. And again, who are they? They're not Jewish. They're outsiders. They're foreigners. Do you, see, do you see some of what Matthew's doing here for his primarily Jewish Christian audience? He's saying to them over and over and over again, this gospel, this good news is for everybody. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, and Amos, you'll find that the prophets are really clear about that message. This isn't correcting, it's enhancing the same message that especially the 8th century prophets, 700 years or so before Jesus, especially what those guys were trying to say. Now, here's in Jesus, we're seeing the culmination of what the prophets were, were calling for. It's the outsiders who will actually help us see who the true king is. Now, I want to I do what scholars call it is, is a, a, a bit of, a, of an excursus here. Um, oh, wait, wait. Well, yeah, I want to do this. Um, Herod gets terrible press in the Bible. Terrible, terrible press. Because he's a pretty evil dude. You know what happens after Jesus is born, right? What, what happens? He kills all the babies. He can't, they, 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 the, the wise men don't come back, the, the magi don't come back to Jerusalem as he's asked them to, and, and so he just flies into a rage, and he just has all the children, all the male children under two uh, killed. Um, a lot of folks, question, scholars question that. I frankly don't. Um, I, the, some of the more liberal and progressive scholars that I read say that probably didn't happen. It wouldn't have happened like that, but Herod was a pretty mean dude. Um, he, he killed a couple of his sons just because. Um, one of them was thinking about, you know, maybe someday can I be king, uh, have him strangled, please, and then put his body on display. Thank you very much. He was that kind of a, of a tyrant. But, but on the other hand, he was a brilliant politician. <laughs> maybe those things go together. Um, <laughs> thank you for the laughter, yeah. Uh, uh, 
was a brilliant politician. He basically kept Rome at arm's length. Now, he was more or less the king in place because Rome gave him that power. But he was brilliant in the way that he kept Rome out of Israel's business and he rebuilt the temple. He rebuilt the Jerusalem wall. He reincorporated some of the practices of their religion and their faith, in, especially in the city of Jerusalem. Um, financially, they prospered. They're pros he was then in office, for, office. He was king from 37 BC to 4 BC, so for 33 years. Uh, he was known as a master builder. He built Masada. You heard of Masada? He built a palace for himself outside of Bethlehem. Now, he's an egotist for sure. Um, he, so he had this false hill. How many of you go to the Holy Land with us? Some of you go on a Holy Land trip? We'll be able to see in, in Bethlehem the hill that Herod built for himself so that his, uh, that his Bethlehem palace, in addition to his Jerusalem palace, would be the highest thing in the valley and everyone could see how rich and powerful and smart and strong he was. But again, from a construction standpoint, it was amazing. It was amazing that he could do that 2,000 years before our, our time and all the stuff that we know now. He also, they think, historians think, he, he or his engineers were the first ones to develop uh, a way for concrete to harden underwater. He built a false harbor out from what was called uh, Caesarea Maritima, uh, Caesar's, sea, uh, Caesar's city by the sea, right just north of Tel Aviv about 20-minute drive uh, by, by bus. We're going to see that in, in October in the Holy Land trip also. Um, this was considered a technological marvel of its era. Uh, he built himself a palace there. Uh, you, so you start looking at all the things. It's, I, I just say this because it's, it's helpful to understand the fuller, broader context. Now, when the stuff that happens in Matthew occurs, Herod is towards the end of his career, and there's all these signs of inner, um, inner palace coups, family members. He's having people, anybody he thinks is against him, he just have them killed left and right. So it gets a little crazy there towards the end. But the first 25 years or so, it's a, it's a, a fascinating picture of somebody who's um, uh, not quite the, the, the uh, uh, paper mache tyrant that we, that we, we tend to, he's more of a paper mache tyrant than, than anything else. Uh, a couple more things here. Um, uh, <clears throat> what Matthew's also letting us know is that the world 2,000 years ago, and sadly today, thought then that violence was the solution to the problem. When the Magi go home another way, as Matthew says, they go home by another road, another way, Herod flies into a rage, and what does he do? Kills all the infants, 200, 2,000, no one knows for sure how many, um, kills them all, just kills them. By the way, have you been, did you see, do you see what I mean about the Christmas story? We, we don't include that in our Christmas pageants for, for good reason. It's an adult story. He has them all killed. There's always been this idea somehow that violence will take care of our problems. If we have just enough power and just enough might and just enough strength. If you heard the sermon on Sunday, you heard this critique that I, I, I found in the book called The End of Power. I highly recommend it to you. This guy doesn't have a political axe to grind. He makes some political commentary on both sides of the issues. But when, he, when I ran to this chapter on, on the, oh, I'm forgetting the title of the chapter, but it's basically on the, on the flattening of power of the military, he's making the argument that we're fighting wars that no longer work. $500,000 Al-Qaeda spent. The United States in response spent $3.3 and we're still in the war. That's $1 by Al-Qaeda to $7 million by the United States of America. And he's essentially saying, and we haven't stopped them. We're still at it. We're fighting a, we're fighting, we're fighting a 1940s style war in a world that no longer functions, functions that way. And it's, just sort of, it's sort of fascinating to see what's evolving in our, in our world right now. It used to be that if you, the biggest army, the strongest army, you won. Since 1950, there have been, I don't remember the number of battles have been fought, but according to his analysis, 55% of the smaller armed uh, combatant in, the, in, in, a, in, a, in a war between two countries won. In other words, they shouldn't have won. It's sort of like, sort of like my California Golden Bears beating Ohio State. <laughs> That'll never happen. But, but that's essentially what's happening in the world. It's flip-flopping because now you can do, for a few dollars and an internet connection, you can make a bomb. Now, I've got a friend in, in Kansas City who's got stuff in his leg from a bomb that somebody made for a hundred bucks in Iraq. 
It's a whole, di whole different world. So it really need, it needs to be, a t we, we gotta pay attention to what, what Matthew's getting at here, especially when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, we'll really see it. Here's, a, here's another example. <coughs> I'm a movie guy too, I love the Bible, I love going to movies. How many of you have seen the movie Munich? Anybody seen it? Have you seen that movie? It's a story of, of the Israelis' uh, revenge for the kidnap and murder of the uh, Munich Olympians in 1972? 72, yeah, 72. In 1972, and it shows how these guys hunted down the organizers of that effort and have them killed. And Eric Bana, who uh, is the star of the movie, the primary leader of this secret group, goes around the world and, and hunts these guys down. He begins to feel conflicted. What's he doing? How is he helping? He's just killing and more killing and more killing. And, he, and, it, and kind of the commentary of the film is there's just been created this cycle of violence. The cycle of violence. And he finally just quits. And he immigrates to the United States of America and he moves to New York and he lives in one of the boroughs of New York. But one of the, the guy who organized the team years before comes to New York and tries to recruit him back. And he's saying to him, come on, you got to come back. We're not done yet. We've got more to find. And, and he's, he's, he's arguing. They're kind of walking in the backyard. And he's arguing and saying, I can't do that. I can't do that. I, I'm, just, it's, that I'm, I'm stopping my participation in the cycle. I'm not going to do it anymore. And the camera then slowly pans. Do you remember this scene? It slowly pans and then it stops on the downtown <clears throat> skyscrapers. And there's the World Trade Center and the film goes to black. Steven Spielberg did that movie. You probably know he's Jewish. And I saw him in an interview the other night on HBO or Showtime, one of those, where he, where he said, you know, I didn't even do that intentionally. We were just panning along the skyline of the city, and then we realized what we had in that shot. And essentially what he's saying is, what, what, where do we stop? What do we do? How do we, how do we get out of this? Frankly, Matthew has an answer. Matthew has an answer for us. We're going we're gonna to get into that a little bit more. So put this next slide up um, about Herod the villain. <clears throat> Herod was up there. The principal villain of the story of the wise man is Herod the Great, the ruler of Palestine from about 37 B.C. to his death, which scholarship reckons to have been in, in 4 B.C. Go to the next. By the way, um, hang, hang on right there for a second, Stuart. Um, Jesus was probably born in 6 B.C. Uh, you know, we, we count from zero as though zero was the actual year. Somebody miscalculated somewhere along the way. And it was probably 6 B.C. Most folks believe that's when Jesus was born. What day was he born? Anybody know? Nah, don't answer. <laughs> no, nobody knows for sure. There's a lot of arguments that it was, oh, it really could have been December because the shepherds were doing No, no one knows for sure. Um, if you want December 25th, that's, that's fine. Uh, uh, the principal villain of this story of the wise men is Herod the Great, the ruler of Palestine from about 37 B.C. to his death, which scholarship reckons to have been in, in, in 4 B.C. <clears throat> All right, let's go to Matthew 3, verse 1. Oh, I, I did want that next slide, Stuart. I'm sorry. The humble birth of the Christ. Did you have that one up there a minute ago? Go to that next one. Yeah, the humble birth of the Christ child shakes the foundations of the world and announces the fall of the mighty. That's underlining what I've just been saying for the last 10 minutes or so. That the announcement of the Christ child is a way of saying things are getting flipped. They're getting turned around completely and it's no longer going to be about who has the most power. The kingdom of God is one that's not based on chariots and horses, uh, but on the love and grace, grace of God. All right. Now we get to a crazy guy. Uh, the proclamation of John the Baptist. In those days, chapter 3, verse 1. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. There you hear that language. Let me say a word about kingdom. Um, 25 years ago, there was a big deal about we needed to get rid of all the kingdom language in the Bible. I argue against that, and here's why. Because when we say kingdom in our context, we mean power, strong, king, armies, battles, we win, all that win. I don't mind that language when it's used in reference to Jesus because Jesus is completely turning it around. He's not talking about that kind of army power or kingdom whatsoever. He's talking about a kingdom based on one where everyone has food, everyone has clean water, Everyone has a shelter, a safe place to sleep at night, and that's what the kingdom of God is going to look like. 
That's the kind of kingdom that's, that's being, being proclaimed here. It's really important when you run into those words uh, to know that's what's, that's what's being discussed. <clears throat> so John the Baptist, yeah, where is he preaching from? He's in the wilderness. Anytime you see the wilderness in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew or frankly any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, that's a time of renewal. That's a time of being saved. That's a time of beginning again. So John is in the wilderness. People are coming out to him to be baptized in the River Jordan. The River Jordan has tremendous symbolism uh, for, for, for Judaism. It frankly, it has tremendous symbolism for us. One of the coolest things we'll do on our, on our um, uh, trip to Israel is invite anyone who, likes to be, who would like to be rebaptized uh, to be baptized. Uh, if you don't want to get all the way down into that muddy water, um, uh, you can, we'll, have, we'll invite people to take the shoes and socks off and, and step down in uh, one or two steps and we'll do a, uh, a restatement of our baptismal vows. My, my buddy Adam Hamilton, who I talk about all the time, he's a big church in Kansas City, he had a group of about 150 uh, that he led through um, the Holy Land and about 50 of them wanted to get baptized, actually baptized, dunked, you know, down in the water and, and all that like, um, like I was baptized as, as, a, as a kid. I teased him and said, you know, if you'd gone to the right church when you grew up, you wouldn't have had to do that. Um, but, but he, he, he sent me a text not too long ago when he saw our newsletter or something that, that had, you know, our Holy Land trip ad, advertised. He said, by the way, if you baptize anybody, one of my sandals came off in the mud and um, I never did find it. If you could spend some time looking around for it. So anybody who's going to be baptized, look for Adam's sandal and it'll, it'll, it'll be a, a, a miracle. Um, Repent, God's kingdom is at hand. You brood of vipers. Uh, these harsh words uh, from John the Baptist are reflective of harsh words Jesus will have for a few folks. Who does Jesus always re re reserve his harsh words for? I don't want to give a label to it. I mean, because Pharisees actually were good people, but in, in general, it's always for people who think they're more righteous than somebody else. It's always for somebody who thinks they got it all together. Jesus didn't, I, I said this in a sermon a few months ago, you can test me on if you want to. Jesus never called anybody a sinner. He might name some sin, but nowhere does he ever call anybody a sinner. But he really goes after people who think they've got it all together, who think they're the ones who already have all the answers, who think they've got all the knowledge that, that, that is necessary. And if you'd just be more like us, think, things would be fine. Um, I just bought a new book by John Ortberg. Uh, it's called, the title of it is, If You'd Be More Like Me, We'd Be Fine. And it's a picture of a cat staring at a dog. <laughs> I just read the first chapter. It's really fun. You'll hear some stories from it, I'm sure, in, in sermons to come. That's kind of how these, these religious, arrogant people, I don't like to say Pharisees because essentially the Pharisees on the whole were a lot like us, educated, smart. Uh, they gave money to the temple. You know, they cared about people being cared for. But there were some who were just really arrogant, obnoxious jerks. And those are the ones that Jesus goes after the hardest to bring, to bring them um, down. Go to slide eight. It should be John the Hinge. As the door to a new era swings open, John, John the Baptist is, is the perfect hinge. He's the right guy to kind of go from, all right, you brood of vipers, there's a new day coming, and, and here he is. It's, it's Jesus. Now let's move on to Jesus' baptism. <clears throat> then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized him, etc. Then he consented, and when Jesus had been baptized, at verse 16, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. I said this in my sermon on Sunday, but just in case you missed that, this is one of the foundational texts for my theology. I do not believe in the doctrine of original sin. Absolutely not. Genesis chapter 1 Day six, God creates all, has every single day, one, two, three, four, five. God looks at it and says, it is good. On day six, God creates humankind, male and female, in God's own image, by the way, equal, same way, same day, in God's image, male and female. God looks at them and says they are very good. It's the only place where the word very is used in that first chapter. Not they're bad and they're going to need to be rescued. They're very good. You go to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's baptized. He comes out of the water. You are my son, my beloved. In you I am well pleased. Actually, I just misquoted it. In Matthew it says, this is. In Mark and in Luke, it's like a mystical experience that Jesus has in his head. That's the way I referred to it on Sunday in the sermon about, about um, Jesus' baptism. 
It's this mystical, amazing experience. He hears this voice, you are my, my beloved child. In Matthew, it's a public proclamation. How does that happen? I, I don't know. I'm not going to worry about that. But somehow, Matthew wants us to see that the whole crowd was told, this, not just speaking to Jesus, you, but this is my son, my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. It's the, really the public proclamation that this is how I want you to understand my desire for the world and the way this one lives his life and, and offers his teachings. Uh, go to slide nine on the next one. In Matthew, however, the heavenly voice declares, that's what I just said, the curtains have been pulled back and now all can see who this Jesus truly, truly is. All right, one, one quick note here on Matthew 4. I'm not going to do too much on the temptation story um, permanently because I just preached on it two days ago and that sermon's available online. Uh, <laughs> but I want to say a couple of things. Go to the next slide, Stuart. Whenever we encounter a biblical reference to Satan, we should not allow ourselves to be distracted by Halloween images of a fiendish devil or by newspaper accounts of bloodthirsty Satanists. Satan personifies all adversaries of God, all those who obstruct and resist what God intends uh, for, for human, human life. And I would add to this. I, I mean, I love that quote. When we talk about evil and we immediately go to Hitler, we're missing the point. Uh, Hitler's evil, horrific. I mean, it's, it's impossible to even comprehend the horror of Hitler. But it almost becomes an excuse for us to not look in the mirror. It almost becomes an excuse for us to not pay attention to, to the evil that's at work, sometimes within our society, sometimes within the systems and the politics of, of what we're dealing with. As I said in my sermon on Sunday, Evil rarely looks like Hitler. Rarely does it come and say, let's kill six million people. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, that, it's, it's horrific to even think about that kind of person and what they would do to, to murder somebody and then consume their body by eating. I just, I don't even want to think about it. But, but the, the bigger, the more desperate story then really is <clears throat> about the evil that's right in front of us. Anybody read Scott Peck's book, The People of the Lie? People of the Lie? Some of you have. There's a story in there about a family. I'm trying to tell it quickly. I know we're getting close to time. About a family whose son kills himself, uses his own rifle. Six months later, on Christmas morning, their other surviving son opens his presents. One of his presents, do you know this story? Is the brother's gun gun, the same gun that his brother used to kill himself has been wrapped and placed under the tree for the other brother. The, the boy goes to school. This is a, he's like an A, a you know, a B-plus student, a good student, B's and A's, does great. His grades plummet. He's an outgoing kid. He, all of a sudden, he's shy and reserved, doesn't talk to anybody. Teachers, they can't figure out what's going on. They finally get the parents in, and they sit down with the parents, and they, they say, boy, we can't, I can't remember his name, Johnny. We can't figure out what's going on with Johnny. What's going on with him? And they talk and talk and talk and talk. And finally, at some point, the mom or the dad, one of the parents says, wow, you know, you know, we, we, gave, him, we gave him that gun for Christmas, and it just seemed like he's kind of been upset since then. And the counselor who knows about the suicide has said, you, you did what? You gave him the gun? Do you see what Johnny thinks? What does Johnny think? Scott Peck says, that's evil. It looks like your next door neighbor. You know, a Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, somebody who's psychologically deranged and crazy and, and all that stuff. It, most of the people in Germany knew about the death camps. Evil plants flowers outside your window while a mile or two down the road, your old neighbors are being burned to death. That's the, that's the, real, that's the real danger of, of the Satan stories. I mean, not, not of the stories. That's the real danger that the Satan story is pointing toward is, is the fact that evil most of the time is disguised in beauty and logic and common sense. That's, that's when it's frightening. Go to slide 11, the last one. The devil is but another name 
for our impatience. We want to force God's hand to rescue us. We want peace, and we want all of this uh, now. <clears throat> um, I'll pick up a little bit with that next week and, and dive into a little bit more. It's, it's too much to dump on you at 7.59. Um, uh, uh, next week, look at, look at uh, real quick, I'm sorry, I, Q&A. Any questions? Anybody have a question or anything? Anything that I've said tonight that's crazy? I'm going to hang around later too and, and talk to anybody who wants to talk if you've got a question. Anybody got a question right now? Are you dying to get out there? All right, good. Um, I'll, I'll hang around here and we can talk. Um, if you have one. Week two, Jesus' ministry. I think there should be a apostrophe there. That's my typo. Um, Jesus' ministry begins at Matthew 4, 17 through 11, 1. It'll really help if you can read those chapters before we come next week. And, and frankly, mark, if you're okay with this, I mark my Bible up. I mark all my books up. They're meant to be marked up. Um, I've got a couple that I don't because they're special beyond that, but the ones that I study in, highlight, mark, scratch, write questions, whatever, whatever you are. Come with your questions next week and, and um, I'll be sure that we, we have 10 minutes at the end for Q&A because uh, I did too much on introductory tonight. Why don't we stand and let's have a prayer. And it is 8 o'clock straight up. God, we're grateful for the word that we've reviewed tonight. We're grateful for the way that it speaks across time, not only from Jesus' day, but even to our own. Open our minds and hearts that we might understand and receive it. Open our hands and bless our feet that we might be ready to serve in the name of this one who came to also be served. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Night, everybody.